Drinking this album Listen to the blues I think it would pair well If only for you Cause it's album reviews Hello folks and welcome to Album Reviews The stickiest music podcast I'm one of your hosts, my name is Sarah And this is my attempt at a transatlantic dialect that was really good. You practiced that one <laughs> so much. Literally, I watched so many YouTube videos. <laughs> wow. uh, hi, my name's Zach, and there, there's no gloves in this podcast or this glove compartment. Uh, <laughs> your second co-host. <laughs> wow. Hi, my name's Courtney Smith, and uh, I'm the loneliest girl in indie rock. <gasps> no. <Hell yeah. laughs> well, not today. Today. You're part of a three-pronged podcast fork. (laughs) Um, Courtney, we're very, very, very excited to have you on our show this week. Courtney is one of the hosts of the wonderful podcast, Songs My Ex Ruined. Um, And I've been getting into it, listening to a few episodes, and it is very fun. It is a perfect, like, commute-length podcast. Like, you get into it when you get going, and you have that beautiful satisfaction of being finished at the perfect time. It's really quite wonderful. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but it's great. It was. It was very L.A. timing. Like you're driving to work perfect. in L.A. time is the length of the podcast. <laughs> Courtney is also an author, an editor, uh, a former music programmer at MTV. And that's going to come up later. You said yes. Okay, so I won't, I won't grill you on it yet, but I'm so excited to talk about that. And you're a TikToker as well, yeah? I have a new series going on that's all about the the forgotten and hidden and untold stories of indie rock at MTV in the 2000s. It wasn't just the OC, it was happening everywhere. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that TikTok account is called Courtney in Songs and we're going to we're going to we might even play some of it on air. We'll see. Get that get that all over your yeah. favorite page. <laughs> Courtney, anything else you would like to tell the people about yourself? Um, I also had a podcast before this called Songs in the Key of Death. If any of you are also low-key true crime people, it's all about murder ballads and the true crimes that inspired them. Um, So murder ballads get a lot of the story wrong about songs, and it's like a fun little limited series listen. Amazing. Very cool. Let's talk about the album in the pairing. Yes. Uh, Courtney, will you introduce it and tell us why you picked it and why you picked the pairing? For sure. So Transatlanticism by Death Cab for Cutie is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year of its release, 2023. Can Isn't you believe that, that? Does it make you feel old? Because it makes me feel Ooh. so old. It, ma- it makes me feel really old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> But a lot. it's one of the, <laughs> the great albums of this era of indie rock. It is still the crown jewel of Death Cab's catalog. And they recently announced a tour that pairs them with the Postal Service, which is, speaking of pairings, wow, nice one. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. that album is also celebrating its 20th anniversary. So this fall, they're doing um, this double bill where they play both of those albums in full, which I think is a really cool idea. Oh, man. And our drink pairing tonight is Royka Vodka with tonic water and lime. Royka is um, an Icelandic vodka that I discovered in my life around this time because Mm. I was living in New York City and alcohol brands sponsored everything that we did (laughs) all the time. Uh Um, But I loved this vodka so much and it's filtered through volcanic rocks, which was so different than everything else. It's nice and smooth and just 
really cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. So it's- sponsorship by Royka coming soon to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Link in description. <laughs> well, let's uh, cheers to it real fast. Oh, yes. Cheers. cheers. Here's cheers. to, cheers. you know, breakup albums that are really long but ambitious. <laughs> To being really sad in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> For a long time, yeah. I feel like being sad in the Pacific Northwest must be a lot like being sad in Iceland, where there's not enough sunlight, yeah. and it's kind of wet yeah. and cold, and there are a lot of serial killers. Oh, wait, no, that's just the Pacific Northwest. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Iceland? I think they're pretty chill. I think they... <laughs> yeah, Iceland's very chill. Totally, totally. Um, well, if you both will step into my ride, so to speak, I'd love to. Whoa, wait, what's this? You both have stepped into the cash cab for cutie. <laughs> oh no! We're oh doing, my goodness! We're, we're doing the game already. I love it. Oh my goodness gracious! You've stepped into the cash cab for cutie. We have stepped straight back in 2003 with cash cab. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so we are all on a journey together to ride through this recording to the end of the episode. Um, but to kickstart this, I have a series of questions, multiple choice questions related to taxi cabs, baby animals, or a death cab for cutie. Okay, uh, Courtney, you will be a solo rider on this journey, but you have three Phonazac lifelines. Um, okay. If you hit three strikes, aka three incorrect questions, you will be kicked out of my cash cab for cutie <laughs> and forced to traverse the rest of this podcast on foot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I'm ready. I, I feel amazing, <laughs> gorgeous. I will start then with question number one. Question number one, a group of pugs is called A, a parade, B, a grumble, C, a band, or D, a thunder? It has to be a grumble. You are correct. Yes. On to the next question. You are still riding in the cash cab for cutie. Uh, (laughs) Question number two. What percentage of cab drivers in London are female? A, 8%, B, 5%, C, 2%, or D, 1%? Uh, Wow, I'm going to say 8%. I'm just going to take a chance. (laughs) Strike one. That's all right, though. You still have two strikes. We are Wait, cruising right along. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, duh. The right answer is C, only 2%. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. crazy? You know, I've never had a woman cab driver in London, so I, I'm not surprised that all the options are extremely low. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least as of this year, I believe the current statistic is 2%. Still <laughs> insane. Uh, question number three. Which TV sitcom actress did Ben Gibbard marry? Your options are A, Ellie Kemper, B, Zoe Deschanel, C, Ashley Benson, or D, Diana Agron. Oh, I know it's B. It's Zoe. Bow, 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 bow. We are oh, cruising in the cab. He, he's married to Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> he was. Oh. Um, he was I believe a they've brief separated. Marriage. Yes. He's married to someone else now, actually. She's a photographer. Oh, oh, that's nice. I don't know if I know that Zoe Deschanel had a song on a She and Him album oh. about the situation. Interesting. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, question number four Which human like relationship do cows form? A, best friend, 
B. Neighbor. C. Boss. Or D. Enemy. I'm going to say best friend. Cows make best friends. That is correct. (laughs) There is actually research about cows that says that when their best friend is not around, if they typically are, they get stressed out. I've seen some TikToks of cows that are best friends with dogs, and it's really cute. (laughs) That's the cutie part of Cash Cab for cutie. (laughs) I was going to ask what the genres were again. (laughs) <laughs> Those are key answers. Okay, I see. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we are still cruising with only one strike. Things are looking great. Question number five. Ben Gibbard is an enthusiast of which athletic event? A, tennis. B, golf. C, running. Or D, swimming. I actually yes. know this one. Ben is a runner, and he's been featured in Runner's World a few times. <gasps> It's a late-in-life hobby. (laughs) I also saw that he completed the L.A. Marathon in under four hours, which is crazy. Also, he's a big baseball fan, so had that been in the mix, there would have been two correct answers. (sighs) That would have been kind of a fun bonus. All right, you're still going great. Next up, number six, what is Sarah's Uber rating? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) A- 4.51, B, 4.74, C, 4.85, or D, 4.93. Wow, not Um, a lot of spread there, Sarah. Um, So I'm going to phone Zach. I'm going to phone Zach for help You know what? I I bet it's the 4.93. Why do you think that? I bet Sarah is always a good tipper and is always very polite and is always (laughs) right outside when the car arrives. (laughs) Aw. Okay, I'll, I'll take I'll take Zach's answer. You're correct. I'm very proud of my Uber rating. Aww. That's so funny. I'm glad that was right. It was hard to find taxi-related um, fun facts. Not a very deep well. Not a very fun genre. Okay, we have two questions left and only one strike. You might just be able to ride the rest of this episode in the cash cab for cutie. Question number seven. (laughs) What is the name for a baby koala? A, joeys. B, kids. C, puppies. Or D, cubs. Okay, it's not joeys. And I want to say it's not kids because that's a goat. Yeah. So I think I'm going to pick cubs because they're a bear. Oh. It is actually joeys, which is crazy because I thought it was wow. only kangaroos. That's, Me well, they're too. Both yeah. They're it must cubs. also be like an Australian thing, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe. It's very cute well, either way. Very yeah. cute. <laughs> very cute. All right. Last question. This could be the one to take it home. Which Death Cab for Cutie album was not. Grammy nominated. A, Transatlanticism. B, Plans. C, Narrow Stairs. Or D, Codes and Keys. Transatlanticism. You are correct! (laughs) 
<laughs> Courtney, congratulations. You won a million billion dollars. And Amazing. you get to do the rest of this episode from inside the luxurious seat of the Cash Cab for Cutie. Thank you so much for playing. <laughs> what does what the Cash Cab for Cutie look like on the outside? On the outside? Yeah. It just kind of looks like um, it's a little rusty. And it's been spray painted like matte purple in a way that's a little bit uneven. Sure. But once you get inside, like the outside's deceptive. It's so nice on the inside. There's like heated seats. I love that. Well, with that out of the way, <laughs> let's get into the album. Um, Courtney, I'd love to hear a little more about why I, I know we were sort of um deciding between two albums. Both by Ben Gibbard, interestingly. So I'm curious, Mm. the reasoning behind this pick. Well, I mean, the tour has been on my mind because it's recent. And there's another project, uh, another podcast that I really can't tell you anything about that we've been working on for a few years now to do with indie rock in the early 2000s. So I've been thinking about this subject like way too much lately Uh (laughs) and revisiting my past a lot lately Um, and interviewing people from my past and like just talking about how things were. It's really fun when you do something where you go back to like the technology or the TV shows that we're on Mm -hmm. and realize how far away 20 years ago feels now and how much the world has changed. So it got me thinking about this album and who I was 20 years ago when I was 25 and what life was like. And so I thought it would be a fun one to talk about. Amazing. 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 Um, Zach, what is your experience with this album? Oh, I was so happy when I saw that it was <laughs> this or, uh, um, the postal service or postal service. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a big death cab fan already. So this is like, we've have like a secret list. We haven't posted yet of all our like wishes for, uh, guest picks. Uh-huh. And this is one of them. So we can cross Aww. it off. I'm so happy about it. Oh, I so think glad. this is the first one we get to cross off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Courtney. I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> Psych- uh, psychically, you knew. We're linked. Yeah. Yeah. Psychically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I, not to sound like a total dweeb and noob, I was like, I didn't realize that Postal Service and Death Cab for Cutie had the same guy behind them until like what? whenever we first started talking about these things. That's so funny. <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> and the thing is, I like both of them. And I'm not like super. And the voice the and, like, his voice is pre- pretty unique. Right. It didn't ever occur to you that. His voice is so unique, yeah. I remember <laughs> listening to some Death Cab, and I definitely know um, the Postal Service album better. Like, that was the one that I have definitely listened to more. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this sounds just like the Postal Service. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> like a silly goose, and then I didn't question not, it at wrong. all. <laughs> you're not wrong. That was not a wrong thought. You were correct. Right. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Um, so this was my first deep dive into this album, but I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I'm excited to talk about it. One of my first times, like, um, it was like hearing Death Cab was at a talent show. I was probably in like fifth grade and one of the high schoolers was playing I Will Follow You Into the Dark. Uh, and he killed it. And that was like one of the first times I was like, oh, I, I want to do music. Yeah. Yeah. Aww, I like <laughs> that. That's so cool. 
so, so I have a really specific memory about the first time that I heard this album. Would this uh-huh. be the right time to share it with you? Yes. Okay. So I got um, a promo release of it like six months before it came out. And I still have it. It's I just posted it on TikTok, actually. And it's this white cover version of it with the bird without, you know, the color. And it's a burned CD. It's <laughs> like, mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> and I listened to it and I was just like, I knew Death Cab already and I had like, been a fan, but they were sort of on that cusp of emo and indie and a lot of like sad bastard music. <laughs> but this album, I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is really good. Like this is a huge light years forward in their style and their production um, album. This is really good. This is going to be big for them. And I actually booked a flight to Seattle and went to go meet their record label and planned to meet other record labels while I was out there. But I was just like, we have to be doing stuff with this band. They're going to be huge. Like, this is amazing. I was really happy when it finally came out that everybody agreed with me. Like, the entire music press was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And their fans agreed. Um, but nobody knew at the time that it was going to be this huge thing in their career. Like, this not only a huge step forward, but um, the one of the best albums of their career. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel really, like, happy to have recognized that upon yeah. hearing it. And I feel yeah. like... Maybe I'm a genius. Is that what that means? I don't know. Maybe you're the tastemaker. Yeah, the (laughs) taste. I don't know about that, but I have some taste. How about that? We'll take it. We'll take it. I agree with that. (laughs) So I was still pretty junior at MTV when that happened. Like, I think I was still a coordinator and hadn't even been promoted to like a manager yet, but I was just kind of yelling at people about this band. And we ended up putting up a whole promotional plan for them with MTVU, which was the college station. And because of that, um, when they signed to Atlantic for plans, we did a really big promotion with them that I got to be the quarterback of. And that was exciting for us too, for all of us, for them, for me, for everybody. That's so sick. That's, that's so sick. That's so amazing that you were a part of a part of all that at MTV. I'm, yeah, I'm like blushing and I over got here talking to, to you. Put them on the MTVU Woody Awards in 2004 for the first actual show we ever did, and it oh, was wow. their first awards show and the first award they ever won. Also, I think. Oh my god, that's so. So cool. that was neat. Yeah, a lot of huge and like exciting firsts all meeting together. I love that. That is so fun. So there's definitely like a deep personal tie here, which is awesome. Yes. Very deep, very personal, very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. What is sort of the feeling that you get or like, where does this album sort of like transport you when you're listening to it? I mean, so many things were happening in 2003. Like that's the year that the whole Eastern Seaboard had a blackout in August. And I remember that from that year happening and the weirdness of it and how we all still felt this hangover from 9-11 because the Iraq war was going on. Death Cab had been really active in that as well as Barsouk. They produced an album that I also helped work on that was like a tribute to um, raise funds for awareness to like try and do something to sway politicians to stop, you know, advancing this war. And I remember Death Cab playing shows with like 
Springsteen and Bright Eyes and Pearl Jam and just like everybody to protest the war. Um, And I remember having a lot of conversations with people around this time, too, about like, where was the consciousness in music and why was so much of what everybody was writing about emotions when there was all this political stuff that was really important. Um, And Death Cab, obviously, with transatlanticism, (laughs) stuck to emotionality, but it wasn't like they weren't politically conscious. They were doing things. Um, And there was this sense... um, this was the album that in 2004, the OC would debut and start name dropping them and playing tracks. And it was this weird thing. They also signed to Atlantic in 2004 and that album plans wouldn't come out until 2005, but it was a big part of the whole negotiation because there was a lot of conversation in indie rock around the idea of selling out. Mm-hmm. And what that meant, does it mean signing to a bigger label? Does it mean just getting a bigger budget and having better production on your albums? Does it mean making songs with like an idea that the radio might play them? Where's the line? And I know that's something that the band struggled with a lot. And I hear it on this album now in a way that I didn't necessarily then. So it makes me think about all those things, like the climate of the times. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of radio singles on this album, right? Yeah. I mean, the first single was the first song, The New Year. That was the first thing they made a video for. And it was the, this was the second music video they ever made in their career. It's a little little funny. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like so behind, right? But I mean, think about it this way. YouTube didn't exist until 2005. Wow. So if you were making a video, video. where were you putting it? If MTV Mm -hmm. wasn't going to play it somewhere, what was the point of it really? (laughs) Sure. Burn it onto like a DVD and pass it out at your show. (laughs) Yeah. They did make a DVD um, not too long after this between Transatlanticism and Plans. There's a a tour DVD called Drive Carefully and Sleep Well Mm. where someone followed them on tour. And that's like one of the last tour DVDs that anybody did because it (laughs) felt so weird. Right. (laughs) Gather up with some popcorn, sit down and watch the tour DVD. Yeah. (laughs) Movie night. Well, I think that's a perfect segue to get us into the first track, into the new year. And I mean, it's January. What a perfect time to be talking about this song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's amazing to me now. I'll see people on social media quoting this song a lot, like Mm. as their New Year's Day song or sharing it. And I'm just like... All right. Well, thanks for the depressing start to the new year. <laughs> cool. Already given up, I see. <laughs> well, there's the line, I don't feel any older, and I always feel older on the new year. Really? <laughs> so that is not relatable, Ben. <laughs> well, this is Ben at like 25, 26, so yeah. it's easy yeah. to feel jaded you when feel you have different. no experience. <laughs> Let's just vibe out to the intro of this, the, the intro to the album, the new year. It's just such a, it sets the tone right away.
I love the way Ben kind of like, or the the band rather, uh, puts little melodies in the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of hear the melody and a guitar part underneath before it happens. Yeah, yeah. When I hear that intro, I hear Chris Walla. Um, he has left the band now, but he is the guitarist and producer of this album. And it's him. This was, I think, recorded at Hall of Justice. And that's him all over. The sort of loudness, like the slow coming up, the the sort of anticipation of the song, the way mm. that the song tells a story with its production is him. And the other thing that sticks out to me is this was their first album with Jason McGear, who's been their drummer ever since then, but he was their third drummer by this album. Fourth oh. drummer, I mean, fourth album, third drummer, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he stayed with them since. And the crispness and loudness and like audacity of the drums are all mm. Jason. And that's really new. It's not what you heard before. So it feels like a big announcement, both in terms of like, we're slowly turning it up. And it's like a metaphor for what they were doing with their production and this like new kind of sound that Jason adds to the fold. Yeah, Before you it even feels hear ben. like it feels like triumphant already. Mm-hmm. Like almost like a the new year. Like we're charging <laughs> forward. It's the opener of the album. I think it's kind of like a perfect theme for an opener. Like not to be too on the nose, but like the new year, a new start, a new album, the very beginning. Like it just, I think, as a theme is smart and like kind of comforting in a way like this is an opportunity to like have a fresh experience I've been thinking about the sequencing of this album today as I thought about this and yeah the idea of starting a story at the beginning of the year and like what is the where is this going what is the time passage that you feel as this album goes on right. is a metric that a lot of bands don't play with yeah and in the song you're not you're like sort of getting little appetizers of kind of themes to come in the album like you're starting to hear about distance and you're starting to oh, hear yeah. about friendships and you're starting to hear about maybe some melancholy vibes. Discontent. Yes. And it's just a little taste because you're going to get so much through the rest of this album. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is an appetizer of, of, yeah. A very tasty appetizer. Of a big meal ready to come, yeah. It's like a big crab rangoon. Like, what's a really good appetizer? (laughs) (laughs) So I remember having a conversation with Josh Rosenfeld, who's the head of Barksuk Records, and he knew that I wanted to do as much as we could to support them. So they were going to make a video for this song and have it be their out-of-the-gate single. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting choice. I think it's a good choice, Mm. Um, but it's like a little melancholy. And it came near the album's release, which would have been at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. I want to say October or November. So it could like ride for a few months. That was also smart. So they could ride it on um, college radio airplay into the new year. Um, And he was just talking about video treatments and they were going to shoot something in LA and what director should they use. And long story short, my friend, 
Russell, who's a video director uh, and now a producer of a lot of things, ended up being in the video. If you watch it, you'll see him. He's the Indian guy with the jet black hair. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Shout out Russell, our shining star. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fun. (laughs) But the whole idea was like a... Ben famously has written a lot of lyrics about not liking L.A. and L.A. being trash. So to set it there and have it be this sort of like on the surface glamorous, but a feeling of darkness and discontent pervades the whole thing was Mm -hmm. the vibe they were going for. Pretty perfect. (laughs) A vibe that I agree. (laughs) I don't disagree myself. Yeah. Let's talk about the outro a little bit on this song. It goes right into some, I had to like, I don't know what they are. Maybe Courtney does. Are they owl hoots? No. Why don't you just play them? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's all feedback. And then it perfectly It's like if you left the tuning open in the studio and just like went into playing the next song, that's the, what it's picking up. Oh, do you guys hear that little like, hoo, hoo. that's not a bird sample. <laughs> I've lived 20 years thinking that was some sort of bird. <laughs> it's, a guitar. bird. it's probably Chris Wallace guitar. Because yeah. <laughs> it, it, it comes up again in the next track that you can still hear it in between lines. Oh, Yeah, after listening to this again and then thinking about Postal Service, there's a lot of really similar production stuff. Mm. Tell me mm-hmm. more. Like we'll hear some of like, some like drum machines and we'll hear Mm -hmm. like some cool samples like this not bird I guess (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so good it's not a drum machine it's that they mic'd the drums totally differently because Jason wanted to do things differently and have the drums be more forward Uh so this is like almost the way the Beatles mic the drums Um, whereas with Postal Service Jimmy Tamborello tracked all the instrument instrumentals like Ben truly only did the vocals whereas mm-hmm. he's a songwriter in Death Cab for the melodies and the, the lyrics and the songs and everything uh, but the music at Postal for Postal Service is completely Jimmy so yeah. he was doing that like um, using Pro Tools and stuff on his Mac but this is really like about the way that they mic'd Jason's drums it sounds really crisp because mm. that's his style Oh, very cool. That's crazy because there's a song later in the album where I could have sworn it sounded almost exactly like one of those old like Casio, like pre-programmed drum beats. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I'm, what I'm thinking of yeah, too probably. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. That's very cool. Ah, I love nope, learning things on this not, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These songs perfectly kind of transi- transition into each other. So I think we should talk about track number two, Lightness, because it is seamless. Mm, it's so good. The way Ben writes, like, yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's very, like, melancholy and poetic, but still, I think, really, like, accessible. Like, I don't think you necessarily need to have, like, a an English PhD to, like, understand the emotions that he's trying to convey. And I mean, part of that's like also in the vocal delivery, but like, I don't know, you can just like be a guy and like listen to these songs and catch a vibe. It's Uh not like shrouded in anything. Yeah. It's not too highbrow. Yeah. 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 This one, I always wondered, I haven't ever asked him and someday I will, 
if Ivory Lines is referring to cocaine because <laughs> I was also wondering that. It was that. very per se- pervasive at this time. And I know uh-huh. we have mutual friends who partook regularly and he's never really confessed to any hard drug use. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that there would be that sort of, he would be in a scene where that would be happening. Right, yeah. right. Histories, mysteries, I suppose. <laughs> Every songwriter <laughs> has their mysteries. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else he might mean by it. I know. I was thinking maybe like, but this doesn't make sense. I was like, white piano keys? But I was like, ah, that doesn't, that doesn't quite I mean, track. It, could that would be very PG, right? Right, (laughs) but I think this is like taking drugs and hooking up, is the right (laughs) (laughs) for our kids' bop version of this episode? It'll be the ivory keys (laughs) (laughs) tickling the ivories, wink. But yeah, this is a really beautiful song, and that sound that you reference, you do hear it throughout Mm. this song, uh huh. And it's so not light. It's so dark. The song is very dark. Yeah. I want to hear the bridge just because I love the way he delivers O Instincts. You shouldn't think what you feel. They don't tell you what you know you should Oh, man. Just on like a little hammock in the ocean. Oh, a hammock <laughs> in the ocean. There's like a nice reverb on his vocals on the OOs that time. And yeah. So yeah. Good. I love it. Yeah, one of my notes for this album, and I guess this also applies to the Postal Service, but <laughs> I was like, Ben Gibbard's voice is so cozy. Like he could be singing about the saddest shit, and I would feel like I am in a cashmere blanket. <laughs> It's true. I mean, there's a wistfulness about it that's like, what is that word that the Danish use? Higgy? Higgy? Oh. Something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's like there's still this feeling of comfort and coziness and hominess to it. Like it feels lived in even if it's kind of dingy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. Even if he's from Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we're ready for uh, one of my favorite tracks, Title and Registration. Yes. Speaking of songs that sound like the Postal Service, this one. <laughs> wow. Wow. I just love how ordinary this this first line is about the, butt, the glove compartment, you know. It's <laughs> one of the best lines he's ever written. Like, yeah. it's so insightful because who it has to have been i don't know this for sure but it has to have been left over from like a lyrical idea for the postal service that Uh he just was like i'll finish this song because (laughs) i know the way he went about writing the postal service songs was like he would put on the tracks that jimmy sent him and walk around seattle and think try to think up lyrics and it would be like non sequiturs Uh or weird thoughts or whatever random thing came to mind and then kind of write a song through about it and that just like just based on the the first line that has to be where this came from. <laughs> yeah, it almost like, feels like um, 
like a shower shot, <laughs> a shower thought. Yeah, or <laughs> totally. like a like a stand-up comedian like testing something out, and they're like, "Hey, did you ever notice that a glove box never has gloves in it, or a glove compartment? What's the deal with glove boxes? What's the deal? Why do they have all this legal paperwork inside? <laughs> <laughs> I want to train uh, an artificial intelligence to, to read this lyrics, but in the voice of uh, of like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> be very good. Do you want to play the lyric for us? Yeah, yes, let's hear it. I would love to. That's just real it's not, drums. Jason is like Jason is that precise. That's crazy. He's an incredible drummer. Ugh. Incredible. Insane. So several things about this song. Okay. This was the last single on this album. Mm. And it wasn't until Atlantic Records picked them up that they funded making a video for it. And the video was done by Patrick Daughters, who was the indie rock video director at the time. And if you don't remember it, it's a really great one where um, there's a body on an operating table and the band is like slowly removing their organs and the heart is the last one out. And it looks not real, like it looks like paper mache. It doesn't, it's not lifelike, but it's very twee like the way that it comes off is very Mm -hmm. you know death cabby and it's great it's really beautiful it's like visually very rich and Patrick Daughters was known for that sort of style that sort of lighting that he did um but this would have come near the end of 2004 this video and it was like a big push and it was the first big push that Atlantic did for them like putting their resources behind the band and this was also the song they played at the Woodies um this was their single at the time. This is the only song on this album that sounds like this. Like, to me, it's a real outlier on the album. And it's almost like Chris Walla produced it in the style of the Postal Service, mm-hmm. knowing what that album sounded like. So the thing is, there was a lot of tension um, in the band at the time about that Postal Service album. It came out at the beginning of 2023, uh, 2003, like February. And this album wasn't going to come out until October. Nobody expected the Postal Service album to do anything. To do so well like it did. It sold double what the Death Cab album sold. Like two years later in 2005, Death Cab had sold 300,000, which was amazing. And the biggest number of their career, the Postal Service had sold 600,000. And they weren't even promoting it anymore or working it, doing anything. (laughs) Wow. Like it it caused a lot of problems in 2003 in the band, a lot of strife. Um, So I've always kind of wondered what the story was they haven't really ever said anything, but it feels like this is sort of um, almost a little sly nod to like Ben's side project and kind of, I don't know if it's a 
diss or if it's like a compliment or if it's just a an acknowledgement, like a <laughs> we know what you did kind of thing. We better be your <laughs> primary band kind of yeah. warning. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, that's obviously a sound that works for him. So totally, totally. <laughs> so for whatever reason, it's a it was a a good end product, right? I yeah yeah. I mean, it's I a great enjoy, song, but it yeah. doesn't sound like the rest of the album at all, no. which is interesting. Yeah, I think listening to this song was kind of the first like where it started to click for me, and like researching the album, I was I was learning a lot about um, sort of the the love and loss that really went into the writing of this album. But this was the first one where it really started to click of like, oh, there there are relationships being mourned here. And that is going to be a theme. I mean, you got your clue with the album title. Like it's a long yeah. distance relationship, right? Obviously. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long distance relationship and a long distance emotional connection, mm-hmm. um, which are two very different things to try to breach. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is where you really get the sense that these are two people that are torturing each other, that have broken up and gotten back together, that can't seem to quite connect. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Out of sync, but still kind of magnetically attracted, but kind of like those... um, those like magnets where when you like throw them together, they go like, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah, about? <laughs> kind of like that. Kind of like that. And what a good metaphor transatlantic is. Cause you could say like, Oh, we're oceans apart. And that sounds cheesy. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little, but transatlantic sounds so cool. It's so Ben Gibbards of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, also I feel like the, the idea of the transatlantic accent got all this attention like at the beginning of the pandemic maybe there were Uh a bunch of think pieces on it and nobody was talking about that in 2003 so what old movies was ben watching i know he was (laughs) i wrote the bio for asphalt meadows and he was telling me that one of the songs was about him and his current wife watching old silent movies and old Hollywood movies because that's like their hobby uh-huh. together. Uh-huh. So you know that dude knew about the transatlantic accent and the totally. made-up accent. Interesting. In 2003 when none of us were thinking about it. Right, yeah, not I- at all. <laughs> 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 Only like once a year when you're watching like It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> exactly. But even then, who knew the name for it before right. relatively recently? You're like, oh, it's old time you speak. Yeah. Do you guys actually <laughs> know about that it? Way. Do you know the history behind it? The history behind the transatlantic accent? Uh-huh. Only a little bit. Only a little bit. I know it's a little bit American, like American English and a little bit like um, like British English and was super common for like film stars. I was about to say TV stars, but I don't think that was really a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's for like radio and, and TV. And so it's, it's, uh, it's just supposed to be easily understood by both accents. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so that's why it's kind of like how all newscasters are Midwestern now. Cause it's just a really easy understood dialect. Yeah. I was watching when I, <laughs> when I was trying to prepare my transatlantic accent for this episode's intro, I was watching um, a voice actor and voice coach sort of explain the accent, and she said it was something that, like, is supposed to not really alienate either demographic. Uh, drink refill. Expo 86 is our next track. Whoever Expo wants to 86. get into it. Yeah. 
Doesn't Expo 86 strike you now like it's like the retelling of a story, but also there's all these messages about anti-capitalism in it that was like not a thing we were thinking about. <laughs> in yeah. 2003, but, yeah. 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 Ben and I are Gen Xers and we are like the generation that unfortunately for our own health um, go through life and work putting in 100% all the time when that is not even the most efficient way to work and also a great way to burn out. And I feel like thematically, this song is about if you burned yourself out on a relationship. Oh, (laughs) that's an interesting take and I like it. Yeah, well, this first line, and I'm just going to keep kudos to, to his songwriting. The slide is such a good metaphor. Sometimes I think mm-hmm. the cycle never ends. Uh, mm-hmm. We slide from top to bottom again again. And then there's this great, at the end of the song, the squeaking of our skin against the steel has gotten worse. Of so like just doing a slide too much. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if, if either of you had like a, a fair that you went to growing up, but there was like a big one at the Wisconsin State Fair. And I would imagine at the World's Fair where you yeah. uh, you slide down this big aluminum slide and it's so hot in the summer and it's like not pleasant at all because you're wearing shorts. <laughs> but you're just 12, oh, wow. so you do it 13 times. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good metaphor for a relationship too. Yeah. Like, a deeply upsetting one, but a good one. <laughs> Definitely. <Yeah>. Definitely. <laughs> I also think this song is where we start in on these sort of like songs that are written in the style of 80s power pop. Like, yeah. But the the lesser known bands, like the, the DBs or um, Let's Active, like the bands that were in the Athens scene but weren't R.E.M. Uh-huh. And... Expo 86 is one. Sound of Settling is one. Um, There's just several of these little bops on this album like this that are so friendly to the radio, but not because it's like mainstream radio in 2003 was not playing this stuff. Like their outer limits were maybe the strokes were (laughs) getting play. Okay. So it's pop, but it's like so detached from where pop was at the time. And I think that that is like, I love that commitment to the three minute long pop song, but it's just so on its own Island aesthetically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I always just, that's cool that you drew some influences I wasn't aware of. Cause I just always called this like indie rock. Right. When I was yeah. a kid. Uh, but now drawing back to like some, some scene with, with REM that, that I think Sire and I are unaware of probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so cool. It's a cool little hidden gem. It is. It is. In like the span of this time, um, Rhino Records always put out these great box sets. And some of the ones from the 2000s are really good. But in the late 90s, there were some, there was a series of box sets they did about the power pop scene in the 80s. Oh. And it was all these you know, jangle pop adjacent bands that were like in the same sphere as early REM, but never as successful. And even one of these bands is one of Mitch Easter's bands who produced all the early REM records. So like, they're definitely were aware of that stuff. Uh And I think that's a more like a more likely reference for them than the Beatles, you know? (laughs) I, I really liked sort of your take on the lyrical content here, like burning yourself out in a relationship. 
Because I, when I was looking at these lyrics, and maybe this is just like my mentality, (laughs) um, but I was sort of seeing someone who believes that they may be like cursed or that they are always destined to an uncomfortable end to things, Mm. um, which I thought was interesting. Like just kind of always, (laughs) one of my notes was like, I feel like I've talked about this in therapy, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) just sort of feeling like, the and in this case what may be kind of a grading um mismatched relationship even if it's mm-hmm. good even if it's bad even if it's hard work like it is always destined to fail i am waiting for something to go wrong yeah oof i mean you can also look at the postal service like the district sleeps alone tonight and some of the songs on that album that are about the same theme of long distance romance mm-hmm. And Ben is dating the same woman throughout mm. these two albums, and they don't live in the same city until plans, and they do. And mm. I'll Follow You Into the Dark is about her as well. Oh, cool. And she's a lovely person. She's great. It was very sad to me that they broke up, and I feel like really weird that so many people have taken these songs that are about them and their relationship, and it's become universal just because yeah. I n- know them. You know, like it's it does make sense. They're very relatable songs, and of course, they've become universal. They were written with the intent of being universal, but uh-huh. it's weird to me personally. Totally, uh, totally. Yeah, to know such a to know specifically, like, oh, is that your song? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the um, in the climate of this album specifically, this is a a relationship where. Um, Ben is living still in Seattle, right? In Seattle or LA? That's right. Yeah. He was in Seattle. There was a period that he lived in San Francisco for a little bit, but like on the West Coast. And his girlfriend was living part of the time in Washington, D.C., but kind of around. She was a journalist who lived mostly on the East Coast. Mm. Yeah. You definitely see a lot of separation here, quite literally from Atlantic (laughs) to Pacific. Mm-hmm. Which is just about the farthest you can get within the contiguous. It truly United is, States. other than being across the Atlantic, it's about <laughs> as far as you can be. Trans American isn't as good as an album name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> quite have that same ring. Not, not quite the same yeah. drama. Not as poetic. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I'm trying to do funny, uh, funny transitions, but none are coming to me. Well, it sounds like you're settling. It sounds like I'm settling. For wow. <laughs> good she did it for you. Wow. <laughs> well, you laid it up for me. Yeah, I just, just had to little, go in and dunk, babe. The volleyball. Little. All right. So no big secret. Sound of Settling, my least favorite song on the Ooh. album. And in fact, I've straight up told everybody involved in that song. This. <laughs> wow. Like it's just, the gumption. I'm going to talk to you about why. What doesn't I'm going to do talk to you, you about why. Yes, please do. <laughs> so I think right around 2003 – if not a little bit before that, a really impactful, really good essay came out by um, Jessica Hopper. And if you don't know her, she's the author of uh, the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic, which everyone should buy. And the essay is in that collection. I read it on Punk Planet at the time, though, and it was called Where Where the Girls Aren't, The Problem with Emo. Mm. And it really dives into this sort of misogynistic narrator that was happening in second wave emo bands, which was a lot of 
dashboard confessional and Jimmy world and stuff, but uh-huh. death cab are tangential to that world. Like they were not, not in that world, especially before this album. Um, and she talked a lot about the way that women become objectified. Women don't have a voice in this world and the sort of like terribleness of constantly writing songs about being broken up with or girls being shitty or, you know, whatever, the way that the songwriter takes control of the narrative. And we never hear from any of these women, but there's a whole genre full of men talking about how women treated them really shitty. And that made a big impact on me. And I went back and listened to previous Death Cab albums through that lens. And some of them are like, are, I think even Ben would say lyrically are really childish and really like mean for no good reason. And this is one of those songs to me where I'm just like, why would you write this? Like, what is this about? I hope it's not about a woman, uh-huh. but I, it doesn't have to be. But since so many of this whole album is about relationships and so many of his songs are, it's hard to read it a different way. Yeah, in context. It might be about something else. But yeah, yeah, that's like what comes to mind automatically, right? And it just was a big turnoff for me. And this, I think, ended up being a single that they worked to college radio, one. but mm-hmm. I don't know that it became a video. It wasn't, I don't know. I was just like, please don't. Don't invest in this song. This can't be <laughs> well, I'm going to take back all the nice things I was going to say about it because I agree with you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think this song has an air of like nice guy energy where yes. it's like, oh, I'm too shy to approach the girl that I could have a beautiful love with. So, ugh, I'll settle. I'll be alone forever because nice guys always finish last. And I was Just like, like, women do not want to be with someone you're settling. They like, don't want right. to be the person you're settling for. Like, that's insulting. Yes. Stop it. Yes, literally. And I mean, I, I assume that we would also touch on this for um, Tiny Vessels. Yes. Oh, literally the next song. We get our two, like, semi-misogynistic bangers, one right after the other. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, they were sequenced beautifully together. So totally. That feeling. Yeah. Real yeah. quick. Yeah, the next one is definitely a little more overt. The next song, Tiny Vessels, actually, I don't like listening to. Tell me more. <laughs> and I think it goes yeah. back to what Courtney was saying earlier. Uh, like, I just feel like I shouldn't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like yeah. forbidden. <laughs> it just feels like a little like a little TMI sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's mean also i think the song is mean too i definitely remember having a conversation with josh rosenfeld at barsook about this song where i was just like this is brutal like whoever this is about whatever like imaginary situation this is whatever like terrible toxic feelings were happening maybe that's not a song (laughs) maybe that's what you take to therapy (laughs) there's a cutting room yeah i know that this one was sort of Like, I've seen that some of the intention behind it was supposed to be like, yeah, it sucks to get your heart broken, but sometimes it sucks to be the person who breaks someone's heart. And I'm like, well, (laughs) well. It's not the last time Ben writes a song like this, though. Like, uh, on um, Narrow Stairs, there's a song called You Can Do Better Than Me. And there's a song that's like, You'll Be Loved. 
on that album too. It's all songs that are kind of like about what you would say to someone after you dump them and you want it to be comforting, but you're not hearing how tone deaf it is. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I feel like tone deaf is a great descriptor of tiny vessels. It feels, it feels very, I think I said this, did I say this on the last episode? It feels kind of Patrick Bateman-y. Like she's Mm. beautiful and I love to get physical and like I'm leaving bruises on her neck, but as the bruises fade, so will I. She means nothing to me. I was like, Jesus, nothing? Goodness, well, my. it makes me think of the manic pixie dream girl phenomenon that yes. was happening in this era and how dehumanizing that was to women because yeah. a lot of these manic pixie dream girl characters that were written were written by men and weren't given any inner life other than being like a chaotic force in the life of the male protagonist. Yeah. No depth, no like sense of her inner life. And that's where Tiny Vessels really fails. Like this could be a really interesting song if it's two people that are using each other and we're hearing both sides of it. That could be like inventive and engaging but the way that it is it just he's it's an asshole is narrating the song (laughs) totally totally i was listening to it and i was like girl you gotta run you gotta run (laughs) you don't need to be here for this (laughs) next year's oscar bait movie starring margot robbie is tiny vessels Yeah, I was grossed out whenever Tiny Vessels, I realized it was like blood vessels, right? The breaking of a blood mm-hmm. vessel. Oh, hickey. yeah, literally. Oh, I, thought I, meant like, I thought it meant like when I was a kid listening to this, like a tiny like sea-bearing vessel, like in a ship oh. maybe. No, this is ucky and I'm mad about no, it. No, it's much more sinister. <laughs> it's much more graphic. Yeah. Like in an uncomfortable way. <laughs> yeah. Sonically, too, this one is kind of subdued and like kind of gives, I think, even more of a sinister energy to it. Because you're really hearing the lyrics. She doesn't mean a thing to me. And you're hearing about, like, dark clouds and, like, oozing tiny vessels beneath the skin. And it's, like, very, like, kind of creepy compared to the rest of this (laughs) album. I just, it's it's an interesting um, sort of tone here. Well, we really take a big swing with the next song, like away from, it's a very side A, side B transition. Mm -hmm. Um, And then everything from Transit Lenticism, which is the next track, track seven, through the end of the album, you'll note there's a flow and there's a connective tissue and it's like they're all designed to go together. Whereas we only got that between the first three songs on side A. Yeah. Um, and this was still like, this was mastered to be a CD, but it was very much of a band that cared about a side A, side B uh-huh. experience. So it's like we have a full reset happening in transatlanticism, both aesthetically and um, in terms of sequencing and in terms of ambition. There's so much stuff in the first half of the album that is like meant to be either for people who've been fans of the first three Death Cab albums or people who like care about singles, um, whatever. It's front-loaded in that way. And then the second half is where this album becomes really ambitious to me. Yes. Transatlanticism, the song, feels massive. 
Like this is this could feel feel like a Roman fucking arena. Like it it feels huge. They really go back to that really like letting you wait for the hook. Like yeah. they'll do something and just you just anticipate for it. Yeah. So have you guys seen Death Cab live before? Have you seen them play I this song live? Not. Yes, I was just looking at the uh, the set list from their 2016 uh, Riot Fest performance. Oh, you were there? Yeah, for like like three people back. We waited so long. Wow! I quit my Jimmy job to go to this Riot this, Fest. We've <laughs> talked about this on the show. Zach worked at Jimmy John's, and they at wouldn't. The time. They weren't gonna oh. give let me have the weekend off to go to Riot Fest. I had free tickets, so I quit. The job. <laughs> wow good for you yes. good choice yes oh my goodness I say cheers to that yes thank you I agree <laughs> yeah so the way that the this has become a song that like I love when it's in their sets because the way the crowd feels yeah. especially once it starts to get to that anticipatory last quarter of the oh, song yeah. and it's building and uh-huh. it's building and just the feeling in the room is like incredible oh. They did play live I Will Possess Your Heart with that giant three-minute intro. And the crowd <laughs> was just like all about it. Oh, man, that bass line. That's crazy. Can I tell you the first time that I heard that song was in the president of Atlantic Records loft in Tribeca. And Ooh. that's where they were like playing us the album. Uh-huh. And she walks up to me and her name's Julie. She, like her mentor was Lear Cohen, who you might know is the guy that created like developed the Beastie Boys. Oh, wow. <laughs> she's from a hip-hop background. She just walk, walks up to me and she's like, look, this is my eight-minute-long single. I don't even care. It's eight <laughs> minutes. And I was like, all right, calm down. All right, okay, uh, sure. <laughs> Great. Also, it's not your single, but <laughs> Can I tell you about the first time I heard that song, I Will Possess Your Heart? Yes. I worked at Party City in high school. <laughs> And a funny thing about Party City is they have a wide array of songs that they play throughout the store throughout the day, but they are all covers that very very closely try to match the original. So there was a cover of I Will Possess Your Heart by Death Cab for Cutie, and I listened to it for several years, several times a week. Oh, no, wow, that did sounds you know it was terrible. A cover or was it just awful? I, I knew that they were all covers. Um, I think the thing that tipped me off to it was there was also a Paramore cover of Decode, and no one does Haley Williams yeah. like Haley Williams. No so, kids, Bob right. Kid can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we want to give the listener a little bit of like anxiety for just waiting for the song to end? <laughs> I think it is like it's a vibe. Like you are this is the idea of the song is you are gliding along on a never ending ocean. Yeah. You yeah. should feel like it's never gonna end. There shouldn't be any anxiety. You are just on the ride. Yeah, you sort of like surrendered yourself to it. You're like on this boat across the ocean and you're going. You're just going. <laughs> you don't have a care and you're not no. in control. Nope. Just cruising. When I listen to it, I'm just like waiting for the so come on. And I'm just like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, you should take that idea to therapy. Because- yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. impatience and instant gratification. Okay, you're right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Your inner metronome might be moving faster than Death Cab's moving in this song. That's a good phrase. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. 
Yeah. Also, people should know this min- This song is also almost eight minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> is this the longest one on the album? On this album, yes. yes. On their in their entire career, no. Such a hardest longer. Yeah. <laughs> cool. It's so good. It's like that for like four minutes, right? Yeah. 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 Well, the great thing about that whole thing to me, and you can see it when they play live, is there's never any point where they increase the tempo. It's not that the song never gets any faster. It just gets louder. Oh, they just take their time with it. So it feels like you're feeling it faster, but you are not. And that's probably a lot of the like sensation that you're describing, Zach. Because it's not actually ever speeding up. It's just getting louder and more intense. Yeah, it's just building energy in a very controlled way. And the like lyrical content over that buildup, just the repetition of I need you so much closer is like so intense and like powerful. Like it's over half the song. Yeah, it's really longing. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. That's what we all want someone to say to us. Yes. Like it's the exact words yeah. that you want to hear from someone. So <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, you really love me. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So like the kind of longing that's being expressed here, and I would imagine like the kind of emotions that that kind of elicits from a crowd watching this is probably crazy. I I would I haven't seen them live, but I would imagine that it's like seeing this song live would be a pretty emotional experience. I've cried at concerts, and you should. Yeah, it creates <laughs> a. It creates a feeling of closeness, yeah, you know, and a feeling of community in a way that absolutely no other song in their catalog does. Ugh, I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. So a lot of the songs that we've talked about um, are really visual in the lyrics. Like, they very much evoke imagery. And that's more true. Somehow on the second half of the album, it's even more true. But I think with transatlanticism, that's one of the most sort of not visual, but emotional songs. The way he paints with um, his lyrics on this song is very, like, evocative of making you feel something more than, like, picture it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like Passenger Seat, the next song. I need you so much closer. I need, like, in my passenger seat. Yeah, I need that's you like a, right. That's very close. That's, that's pretty close. <laughs> that's an intimate space. And we are going on to Passenger Seat. Okay. Which is so nice. It's so beautiful. It's a so little cozy. <laughs> it's one of like the most beautiful Death Cab songs, I think. Like yes. so wistful. And it's just this very particular story. It's like one teeny tiny snapshot of a moment, which makes it work so well. Yeah. yeah. And it feels so safe and just like. Nice. As a as someone who is in a relationship and never drives and is only ever in the passenger seat, I felt very seen here. <laughs> With your feet yeah. on the dash. <laughs> well, I don't I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I think it's a really interesting bookend to transatlanticism, though, because thematically it's so like you go from 
I don't know, Titanic to a Wes Anderson movie really quick. You know, it's sure, like uh-huh. from this epic feeling of like, I just realized I'm so in love with you and I have to do anything to get you near me to like this tiny little snapshot of happiness moment, yeah. which is so nice. Uh, is this the only sort of like sweet, happy love song on this album? I thought it was a nice respite. No. Oh No, I think the last song, A Lack of Color, is oh. also, it's like wistfully sad, but it's also um, really romantic yeah. to me. Yeah. This is the one that is like mostly just chill vibes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This one's- well, it says something to me about the psychology of the songwriter. Like, I will allow myself to acknowledge a tiny moment of happiness, but yeah. otherwise I'm going to really emphasize the bad feelings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's only two verses. <laughs> that's, that's what they call anxious attachment style, I think. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I can only get two verses of happy stuff. He went to one crumb of therapy. <laughs> but he does so much with those two verses. Just he's just such a songbird. I know he took piano lessons from like since he was a kid. Oh. Um just the way he weaves melodies just with even like what 16 lines of text is yeah. so so good. Yeah. It's a nice break from the existential angst. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then we just collide ourselves right into some more existential angst with the next track. Yeah. Yeah, yeah let's get sad again. Let's get weird again. <laughs> death of an interior decorator at uh, first glance i was like what a strange song title and then i read about it and i said oh what a good song title <laughs> <laughs> so this is based off of a movie a woody allen movie called mm-hmm. interiors and yeah. when i here's a funny zach story when i first read this wikipedia article i was confusing woody allen with tim allen and I'm reading the synopsis of this wow. drama, this 1978 drama, and I'm like... It's by the shag dog. <laughs> I'm like, Tim Allen. <laughs> Jesus. So one of the first times I met Finn, he was wearing a Woody Allen t-shirt. Oh. And this was like, I'd seen a couple of indie boys wearing it, and it was some sort of like, what did it say? It was something to the uh, the tone of like, what would Woody Allen do kind of vibe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he was a big Woody Allen fan. We have not had a conversation about Woody Allen since like 2013, I think. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how he feels about the post-scandal Woody Allen. I would imagine pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all feel, that's the problem with Gen X. All of us feel pretty bad about somebody who we really loved at <laughs> one point because that, they've right? all done some terrible things. Um, but yeah, the like Woody Allen's a huge, massive early influence um, for Ben. Wow. So I think like this sort of little deviation to in the in the theme into like the internal world of stuff that we like is really interesting, and it speaks to a high fidelity mindset. Uh-huh. If you've read the book or watched the movie, the sort of what you like is what you're like signaling hmm. of the early 2000s um, really comes into play with the song. I like it. And the movie's kind of a downer. It's a big downer, which makes sense <laughs> is for there the, a, the Wait, is there a Woody Allen movie that's not kind of a downer? <laughs> that I is a really fair point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But he's kind of like, he's referencing a lot of stuff from the movie. Like, I think I didn't watch the movie. I watched the trailer and a synopsis, but there's like a vase breaking that he's got a lyric in about it. And Yeah. But it's also the kind of thing where if you didn't know that, you would not know that. Yeah. And in 2003, we weren't Googling shit like this. So. 
<laughs> it was a, you had to know to know. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. It's kind of a hipster thing for Ben to do. I like it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. definitely. Let's not shit ourselves. Ben was a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> that Ben delivers the line, can you tell me why you have been so sad? Something about that particular delivery just scratches my little brain. It's a great harmony moment. Yeah. And Chris loops Ben's vocals on top of each other. There's like three different Ben's happening in that chorus. I love all of this production insight because, I mean, I found what I found, but it's great to have someone who – is like, oh, yeah, I know intimately the production details. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quick side note, Courtney. You've been, like, the best guest for this album. This is so Literally. great how much you know. I'm yeah. so amazed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we're on We Looked Like Giants. We Looked Like Giants. They might be giants. We Looked Like Giants. Just kidding. So quick question. Does anybody know what the J-A-M-C is? I looked it up. Will you tell us about it more? <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> We read the JAMC is the Jesus and Mary chain, and they would have a huge resurgence just a few years later. Um, and interestingly, in 2001, on Jimmy World World's album "Bleed American," they had a uh, Jesus and Mary chain reference too uh, on their little song with uh, the guy from the Promised Ring. Um, that was all references. The whole song was references to other bands. But this was like a very sly sort of like hipster moment. Speaking of like hipster moments yeah. on this Death Cab album. <laughs> Definitely. We covered Bleed American. We, t- we like, covered Bleed American. We totally missed this reference. We totally missed this reference. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, there are a lot of references in that song. In true. Yeah. true. True, 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 true. <laughs> but yeah, this song, We Looked Like Giants, A, made me wish I lived in the Pacific Northwest. The, yeah. the whole crossing mountains to see you, I think, is very poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also very, like, kind of high school puppy love. Like, I, I believe one yes. of the lyrics is, like, we're learning how each other's bodies work. Like, it's so yeah. – it, it very much feels like we're experiencing all these milestones together. How special is that? I mean, it feels like um, this is the moment where they're finally in the same city in this – not transatlantic, but long distance romance. And it's like, oh, the excitement of being together is all sort of captured in all these ways. And it's like, we can't wait to do all the physical things. And that's what the song is kind of about. It's like, we're going to dance to our favorite band. We're going to like do high school makeout. We're going <laughs> to like actually be together. And the it's not giddy is the thing though. It's like almost a little bit sad because there are like these references to suburban towns and mountain passes and college classes. <laughs> and it's just like, who 
exactly is this about? How does this fit into the scheme of the um the theme of the album? And I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I think that's interesting because it very much feels like you went to high school or like lived in the same town as this person and like you went to this school in this state and they went to this school in that state and you're reuniting um and i'm curious if there's an actual experience there (laughs) and who's making out in their car in their 20s right (laughs) i wonder if he's writing all these breakup songs about um you know a bad relationships he's experiencing now and this is maybe a track of, of reminiscing about one of his like first relationships, one of his oh. younger relationships. Because so I think there's some lines about like making out in a car. No one makes out in the car past the age of like 23. <laughs> Even that feels a little late. Like, that's like <laughs> yeah, maybe like didn't 19. you get an apartment yet? Like, you <laughs> right. or something? There are better places. Yeah. You don't have to go over the console. <laughs> So yeah, it, it's like a little bit of out of stepness with the storytelling, but it's you know charming and yes. nostalgic. Yeah, very nostalgic is a great word for it, and a little horny. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and then the last song. Oh, the, the last, last song, song is my favorite song on the album. I this think. one made me tear up. This one got me got me going. Just from it, it it's very like tender well it's another one that starts with these sort of lines that are very um compelling right off the bat this when i see you i really see you upside down but my brain knows better and it picks you up and turns you around like the scientificness of that yeah who is thinking about love through this literal schema of my eyeball doesn't work this way so it becomes a metaphor for like i know that i don't see you accurately i see you you know upside down or through the lens of love and mm. that's okay that's what i like about it yeah uh, that part that got to me zach you have the lyrics pulled up let me mm-hmm. look real quick if if you feel discouraged that there's a lack of color here please don't worry lover it's really bursting at the seams from absorbing everything the spectrum's a to z oh my goodness <laughs> Oh my goodness. That is like the part where I was like, it's the, I call it 703 lyric, just like the specificity of that. (laughs) It's like, why don't you just stick a knife right in my heart? (laughs) Yeah. And leave a message on your machine. Way to really throw us back to 2003. (laughs) (laughs) Let me call you on my landline. I mean, 2003 was when I got my first cell phone and the cell phone number I have now is the one that I got that year. That's amazing. And it's like, it was such a unique thing. I mean, such a different thing to have that. We didn't text then. Like, that wasn't a, an option. It wasn't a thing you did. Yeah. So you were, even if you called somebody, you were going to leave a voicemail. You were not texting them yet. So the way we talked to each other was still, it's weird. Like, that's the thing. When I say it's the 20th anniversary and doing all this stuff and thinking about what things were like in 2003 or so, how different the world was because of technology is absolutely wild. Yeah, that's so insane. Uh, we've we've covered such a wide breadth of albums on this show. So I'm like contrasting this in my head with like about a year ago, we talked about like Olivia Rodrigo's Sour, where that one is yeah. like very explicitly like, 
you're liking this girl's Instagram posts or whatever. Like it is so (laughs) exactly whenever it was released, 2021. So I'm so curious to see on the sour 20th anniversary or what have you, like (laughs) what happens next or how people may look back at that with nostalgia. Like I'm sure I'll look back at it and be like, oh, remember Instagram? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now that TikTok is everything, who even would yeah. like an Instagram photo? That's adorable <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Courtney, what part about this song? You mentioned that it's your favorite of the album. What makes it stand out for you? It feels like a goodbye. Like the way this album is sequenced is so compelling to me now. And I mean, I knew it was a brilliant album when I first heard it but I didn't hear it the same way that I do now. And this track is such a beautiful letting go and goodbye. I mean, it's like, I know that I've fucked up and this is over and here's everything I wish I'd done differently. And here's all the things that I really loved about you and our relationship. And it's like, it also says goodbye to the listener of the album. Like you're leaving this world. Now you're leaving the world of transatlanticism, whatever this relationship was, however you felt about it, whatever you connected with in this experience, you're saying goodbye to it also when you listen to this. And I think like the meta levels that that creates is really fascinating. That's a really beautiful contrast with the opener you know, how we were talking about it feeling like a new beginning and hints at themes and kind of triumphant and like, here we are, it's time to start versus this song where where it's sort of acknowledging what's happened and, and we're sending gonna part you off. ways now. Yeah. That's really smart. <laughs> That's really quite <laughs> really it's not quite my good. intelligence, it's death cabs. Like yeah. they were definitely aware of what they were doing. And that's what makes this such a like crown jewel of their catalog. It wasn't just that they did much better production and that they were in a real studio and they made more ambitious songs that were longer or more dense, or they had a new drummer who's better. It's that they thought about all this stuff. Like they really thought about the message and how to like take you on a journey and how to do an album that felt ambitious um, with all the tools they had at their disposal. And they did. They created truly the masterpiece of their catalog. I agree. I I love a thoughtful album. I love an album that is a journey. And this is absolutely part of that club. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You feel a destination at the end. Echoes interpersonal relationships in that we don't like every song. Like we don't like every aspect of a person. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. even the people you love the most, there are things about them that are annoying. Totally. But you have to let them be and express themselves and like get those thoughts out and find a way to see the negative parts of them and love that too. Yeah. And that's kind of how this album is. Totally. To They're mm-hmm. still a part of it. Let's give the, our listener a little bit of, of closure, which is like the intro, the guitar track. Yeah. Let me oh, see. Man.
but my brain knows better. It picks you up and turns you around, turns you around. Mm, more warm oh, blanket. Dude. Yeah. It's the um, reflectiveness for me, the sort of like looking back and seeing the ways you could have been better, like kind of the mournfulness of what could have been. But the music is so gentle and it sends you on this like gentle good night. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like a sweet little campfire song almost. Yeah. Totally. I love it. It's so sweet. Such a sweet and tender pick. Yeah. So where does where does that leave us? This leaves us, we certainly want to give this album some sort of award. And I feel left with a lot of, well, I mean, I feel, a, I feel left with a lot of complicated feelings. <laughs> Maybe yeah. some stuff to take to therapy. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, that parallels Death Cab's story, right? So after this, they would move from an indie label to a major label, which they had a lot of internal debate about and a lot of dialogue and feedback from their fans about, and people didn't all love it. And some people loved it a lot. And a lot more people discovered them after this album. Um, So it was like... The complicated feeling of making something that you get really acknowledged for, um, but then when that opens a bigger door for you, is it the right door to go through? Yeah. And you, in your cash cab trivia, brought up that transatlanticism is one of the few of their albums that they haven't been nominated for a Grammy for, and that is because... Indie labels rarely got Grammy nominations for albums. They might be able to wrangle one for like artwork or something, but they've been nominated for best alternative album pretty much every year since yeah. they signed on to a major label. And that's just how the system works, it's you know? Politics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's give it a Rebruski. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so perfect that that the album ends in this way and you're like, all right, we're done with the album. Now let's give it a Rebruski. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Giant thank you, Benjamin Gibbard, for for writing all these great songs and the band behind you and Death Cab for Cutie. We would like to award you with the Rebruski for Songs My Ex Made Better. Wow! Very nice. Very nice. Thank you, folks, so much for listening. We are Album Rebrews, and we will continue to be Album Rebrews. If you'd like to check us out on Twitter or Instagram, we are at Album Rebrews. And if you'd like to take a look at our website, it is www.albumrebrews.com. A giant thank you to our editor and theme songwriter, Cameron Bop. Go check him out on Twitter at CamBop. Uh, that is C-A-M-B-O-P-P. Um, he's a great guy. Hire him to write your theme song for your music podcast or your, I'm going to cut all that. Sorry. Or but. literally anything. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Yes. Uh, a giant thank you to Courtney Smith for coming on. Uh, this was such an amazing episode. We can't thank you enough for all the cool insights you had on this record. And your sweet patience with all of our technical <laughs> issues. Yeah. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Make sure to go check out Courtney's podcast, Songs My Ex Ruined, anywhere you get your podcast. Go check her out on TikTok, Courtney in Songs. Um, and yeah, it's a great little podcast. They also do some music and some good laughs. Uh, Courtney, anything you want to say to the folks before we hop off here? 
Uh, thanks for all your patience. I hope you really enjoy my early 2000s bullshit. <laughs> we did. Always. Coming your way. <laughs> <laughs> well, to close us out, in the same order that we introduced ourselves, we're going to get nice and close to the mic and say a very tender and sweet, I guess kind of like the end of this album, a very tender and sweet goodbye. So I'll go first. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.